How would you like to learn a lot in a short amount of time? A major infusion of knowledge in, say, five minutes? And what if those five minutes distilled the best ideas from some of the best minds in the world? Sound like something that might interest you? If so, you've come to the right place. At Prager University, five minutes is all the time we need to communicate many of the most important ideas in life. No less an authority than Abraham Lincoln confirms this view. His Gettysburg Address, widely considered the most important speech in American history, is all of 272 words, less than a third the length of our courses. The trick is clarity. All of our courses are clear, as well as concise and on point. Just as a shot of espresso boosts your energy, a shot of Prager University boosts your brain. Because not only will you have more knowledge, you will have more wisdom. If you think I'm exaggerating, there's an easy way to find out. Just watch a course. If you are under, say, 30, you have a tsunami-sized problem coming towards you, and you probably don't even know it. That killer wave is the national debt. Countries, like people, go into debt when they spend more than they have. You and I buy things with the money we earn. Governments buy things with money they get from taxes. When spending outstrips revenue, the government is in the hole. Right now, the hole is $17 trillion deep. This is an incomprehensible number. What is a trillion dollars, let alone 17 or 20 trillion? Common analogies like you'd have to stack $1 bills 67,000 miles high to reach the current debt, though impressive sounding, don't help much if at all. So let's bring the problem down to earth. Right now, most investors believe the United States is a safe bet. They believe, in other words, that they'll get the money they loan to the U.S. back with interest. But this can't go on indefinitely. At some point, investors are going to say, you have too much debt. You're a bad risk. No more money. What happens then? We don't have to guess. We can look at Europe, specifically Greece. Investors were happy to loan Greece money until 2010, when it finally dawned on them that Greece couldn't possibly pay them back. Almost overnight, Greece became a very bad credit risk, and the economy went into a death spiral. Businesses failed, thousands were thrown out of work, the government couldn't pay its bills. Germany and the other European economies had to step in and bail Greece out, but the Greeks suffered terribly. The same thing happened in Portugal and Spain. Yes, the United States is much, much bigger than Greece and has a much more dynamic economy. That's true, but the principle doesn't change. We can borrow more money than Greece, but sooner or later, investors will say no more. And if they ever do, our economy will go into the same downward spiral the Greek economy did. Here's another point. At the time I'm giving this course, the interest on our debt is very low, around 2%. But what happens when the interest rate rises from 2% to the much more normal 5%, as it inevitably will? Where is the U.S. going to get the money to pay the higher interest on its enormous debt? Do we borrow even more? Well, that just gets us deeper in debt. Raise taxes? Well, that cuts economic growth. Then there's the question of who these investors are who are loaning us all this money. The biggest investor right now is China. 
not exactly a trusted ally. The more money they loan us, the more influence they have over us. Maybe they'll never exercise this power, but do we really want to give them the option? And consider one final point. Is it moral to saddle future generations with this massive debt they had little or nothing to do with? How would you feel about yourself if you knew that you were leaving your children on the hooks for debts you incurred during your life? You had a great time living in a big house, driving a nice car, but you never paid for these things. You left it to your son or daughter to pick up the tab. That's why the people who should care the most about the national debt are young people. They're the ones who will be stuck with the bill. Seniors, and even those who are now in middle age, the ones who took on all this debt, might be able to shrug it off. But young people, in their 30s or younger, can't, or at least shouldn't. Is there a good way out? Yes, there is. If the economy grows robustly, the government will take in more revenue, and it can then use that increased revenue to pay the debt down. The second way out of debt is to cut spending. If we spend more than we take in, which is what we've been doing, we're going to go deeper and deeper into debt. Common sense would suggest that we bring our revenue, the money the government takes in in taxes, and our spending in line. If you combine the two, robust growth and reduced spending, we have a real chance to get control of our national finances. So is the debt a big problem? If you're worried just about tomorrow, probably not. But if you're worried about the future, and especially if you have a lot of future in front of you, yes, it is a really big problem, as big as a tsunami. I'm Michael Tanner of the Cato Institute for Prager University. Join Prager University, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and sign up for free at PragerU.com. How important is free speech on a college campus? Here's what the Supreme Court said in 1957 in the landmark case Sweezy v. New Hampshire. Teachers and students must always remain free to inquire, otherwise our civilization will stagnate and die. Inspiring words and true, which is why what's happening in American colleges and universities is so disturbing. A study conducted by the Association of American Colleges and Universities in 2010 revealed that only 30% of college seniors strongly agreed with the question, is it safe to hold unpopular positions on this campus? Worse, the study found that students' confidence that they can hold unpopular opinions declines from freshman to senior year. How can it be that at a place where speech should be the most free, the university, young people fear merely holding to say nothing of actually expressing unpopular opinions? The reason is that for decades now, students have been sent a clear message from their schools. Express dissenting opinions, violate political correctness, or even just criticize the administration at your peril. After working for 12 years at the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, I have seen hundreds of examples of students in peril. Here are just a few. At Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, a student employee was found guilty of racial harassment for publicly reading a book that some of his fellow employees found offensive. The book was Notre Dame versus the Klan, and it was available in the school's library. It recounted and celebrated the defeat of the Ku Klux Klan, when its members marched on Notre Dame in 1924. So what did the university find offensive? The photo on the book's cover. 
At the University of Delaware, students were forced to undergo ideological re-education as part of the university's compulsory student orientation program. The program was described as treatment for students with incorrect attitudes and beliefs. Students were taught to adopt highly specific university-approved views on politics, race, sexuality, sociology, moral philosophy, and environmentalism. They were also required to attend one-on-one meetings with their resident assistants, where they were compelled to answer intrusive, probing, and utterly irrelevant personal questions such as, when did you discover your sexual identity? And an increasing number of schools are trying to drive religious students off campus. Vanderbilt University, for example, has enacted a policy that forbids faith-based student groups from selecting members and leaders based on their faith. As a result, 14 Christian groups have been de-recognized by the university. Then there are speech codes at a majority of American colleges and universities. What is a speech code? It is a university regulation or policy that limits or bans expression, written or verbal, that is protected under the First Amendment. Such codes are applied with glaring double standards against religious, conservative, or politically incorrect speech, or simply speech that a particular campus administration happens to dislike. In other words, there are things you are completely free to say and write off campus that will get you in serious trouble if you say or write them on campus. These codes include policies that ban speech that administrators find insulting or offensive. One absurd code that appeared at multiple universities banned inappropriately directed laughter. And in Orwellian fashion, some schools even limit free speech to tiny sections of campus called free speech zones. Recently, at the University of Central Arkansas, you were subject to disciplinary action if you said or did something deemed annoying to another student. In the most extensive study yet conducted of campus speech codes, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education found that 62% of America's top colleges maintain serious restrictions on written and verbal expression that violate First Amendment protections. What are the consequences of all this censorship by colleges and universities? I explain that in detail in my book, Unlearning Liberty, Campus Censorship, and the End of American Debate. But for our purposes here, I will focus on just three. First, campus censorship teaches students that they have a right not to be offended. The moment society says that people have the right not to be offended, it is announced the end of the right to free speech. Second, campus censorship teaches students poor intellectual habits. It teaches them not to think critically lest they arrive at a conclusion or express a thought that might offend someone. Further, students are taught to ignore the timeless principle that educated people should actively seek out intelligent people with whom they disagree for debate and discussion. And third, it teaches students that they have fewer rights than they actually have, that they must defer to arbitrary authority. A generation of students who don't know their rights and believe they must get permission before speaking their minds is not thinking like a free people, and that is a threat to a free society. The rights embodied in the First Amendment shape American society. They foster America's religious and cultural pluralism, spur scientific and scholarly innovation, and thus secure our remarkable prosperity. But today's universities, with their censorship, speech codes, and political correctness, are putting the future of this unique experiment in freedom at risk. This is the very opposite of what American higher education was founded to do. I'm Greg Lukianoff, president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education for Prager University. Join Prager University. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and sign up for free 
at PragerU.com. Most people think of happiness as essentially a selfish issue. I want to be happy, and I want to be happy for me. I'd like to suggest that, in fact, happiness is far, far more than a selfish desire. In fact, it is a moral obligation. I know that most people have never thought of happiness in this way. Neither did I, to tell the truth, for much of my life. I thought that happiness, and especially the pursuit of happiness, was all about oneself. But it isn't. Whether or not you're happy, and most importantly, whether or not you act happy, is about altruism, not selfishness, because it is about how we affect others' lives. And that's what makes it a moral issue. Ask anybody who was raised by an unhappy parent whether or not happiness is a moral issue, and I assure you the answer will be yes. It is no fun being raised by an unhappy parent, or being married to an unhappy person, or being the parent of an unhappy child, or working with an unhappy co-worker. Our happiness affects others profoundly. That's why happiness is a moral obligation. We are morally obligated to at least act as happy as possible, even if we don't feel happy. People can't be guided by feelings because it is how we act that affects others, not how we feel. A good analogy to bad moods is bad breath. Why do we brush our teeth multiple times every day? It's not only because of hygiene, it's because we want to present good breath to anybody who we come into contact with. Well, the same thing holds true for our moods. A bad mood should be regarded exactly as we regard bad breath. Why are you inflicting it on me, or why am I inflicting it on you? It's just not right. That's why one should endeavor as much as possible to act as happy as possible as often as possible. And just about anyone can do this. No matter how unhappy you may feel at any given moment, you can and have to make a decision on how to act. We may not be free to control whether we feel sad or happy, but we are free to control whether or not we present a happy countenance to others. That doesn't mean we don't share how we feel with our best friends, including hopefully our spouse. Of course we can, and without overdoing it, we should. You know, I'm really sad. I had this problem at work today. I have this problem with my marriage. I have this problem with my kid. I have this problem with my parents. But you don't inflict a bad mood on anybody. That's a different thing altogether. We all have the capacity to control how we express ourselves, no matter how we feel. I can prove it. Imagine someone who is just acting miserably to his or her spouse when somebody comes to the door. Have you ever noticed how nicely such a person will treat the stranger? How are they able in a split second to go from inflicting their awful mood on their spouse to acting beautifully toward the stranger who's at the door? Obviously, we can control our moods. Or how about this? Let's say you are chronically in a bad mood and I offered you $10,000 a week not to be in a bad mood. Do you think this would affect your ability to be in a good mood? I suspect so. And to be honest, we even have the power to affect how we feel, not only how we act. Abraham Lincoln famously said that we are as happy as we decide to be. That is exactly what we should decide. 
Being happier is good for us, and it is what we owe everybody who is in our lives. Becoming happier is another great benefit of acting happy. The happier we act, the happier we will feel. We think that our actions are determined by our feelings, but we have the power to achieve the opposite, to shape our feelings by our actions. How we act influences our feelings more than our feelings should ever be allowed to influence our behavior. So yes, indeed, we do have a moral obligation to be, or at least to act, happy. The happy make the world better, and the unhappy make it worse. Happiness is a huge issue. Lincoln was right. We are as happy as we decide to be. And it's time to make that decision. I'm Dennis Prager. Join Prager University. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and sign up for free at PragerU.com. There's no hot-button issue hotter than rent control. Even the most courageous politician quakes at the idea of opposing it. For starters, no one likes landlords. Second, those who benefit from rent control, and there are a lot of them, vote. And it has huge emotional appeal. Imagine the 6 o'clock news story. A reporter interviews a senior citizen, describing how she'll have to vacate her small apartment, her home for 25 years, if her rent control isn't maintained. What politician wants to go up against that? These are just a few of the reasons why. Once a city adopts rent control, it's almost impossible to dislodge it. But does rent control work? Does it lower or raise housing costs? And does it increase the building of more affordable housing? It might surprise you to know that nearly all economists on the right and the left, from the late Milton Friedman to Paul Krugman, agree that the answer is no. In a survey of 464 economists in the May 1992 issue of American Economic Review, 93% said that a ceiling on rents reduces the quantity and quality of housing available. Why the unanimity? Because it's an accepted economic principle that government-imposed price controls, and that's what rent control is, always lead to price distortions, in this case rents. This applies everywhere, but let's focus on New York City, the place where I have concentrated my research. New York has the biggest rental market in the country. Of the city's 8.2 million residents, 5.5 million rents. And these 5.5 million renters live in about 2.2 million apartments or rented houses. Every year, a city board votes on how much owners of rent-regulated apartments will be able to charge their tenants for the following year's one-year or two-year leases. The board members base their decisions not on supply and demand, but on an estimate of how much costs such as fuel and insurance have risen. And, of course, how much of an increase voters will tolerate. Think about what this means. The longer you stay in your apartment, the more you benefit from below-market rents. Or to put it another way, why would you ever leave your rent-controlled apartments? The late screenwriter Nora Ephron once noted with some satisfaction that she moved into a five-bedroom apartment on the Upper West Side in 1980 and stayed there for 24 years, paying one-third the true market rent. 
The well-off who benefit from great rents have the resources, in part from the money they've saved on rents, to make their own improvements to their units, paint, redecorate, and so on. But what about the majority of renters who have much less money? They're not so lucky because landlords can't afford to improve or even maintain their rent-controlled apartments. Since they can't raise rents to market levels, they can only make a profit by keeping their costs to an absolute minimum. And there's another reason landlords have little incentive to maintain rent-controlled apartments. They have no fear that their renters will move out. And if they do, there's always a long line of people waiting to move in. And consider one more unintended consequence of rent control. Why would investors build new apartments for anyone but the very wealthy in a city where rents are controlled? The answer, of course, is that they rarely do. The vast majority of new residential construction in New York is geared to the wealthy who can pay rents above the controlled limit or who are willing to buy their apartments outright as condos or co-ops. These expensive units are well beyond the reach of the middle class, let alone those lower on the economic stratum. In sum, rent control, one, hurts the people it's supposed to help. Two, give landlords little incentive to improve their housing stock. Three, discourages construction of new housing for all but the rich. And the voters love it. So rather than dream of the day when New York or Los Angeles and other rent-controlled cities might abandon this self-destructive urban policy, maybe we should see this as a cautionary tale that well illustrates a valuable maxim. Be wary of government programs bearing gifts. Like the famous horse that destroyed an ancient city, they come with all sorts of problems. I'm Nicole Gelinas, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Prager University. Join Prager University, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and sign up for free at PragerU.com. Ever since the 18th century and the dawning of the so-called Age of Reason, most of the best educated people in the world have been absolutely certain that reason alone will lead us to goodness and a good world. We don't need a god, we don't need religion, all we need is reason. Evil, we have been told, for almost three centuries doesn't make sense. It's irrational. That's why you'll often hear murderous dictators referred to as madmen and their evil regimes described as products of madmen. In other words, the very opposite of rational men. Stalin was irrational, Pol Pot was a madman, Mao's genocidal cultural revolution in which he directed the killing of 50 to 75 million Chinese in peacetime, no less, is routinely called madness. And the Iranian regime's calls for the annihilation of Israel are routinely dismissed as, you guessed it, irrational. Meanwhile, good and moral things are always associated with being reasonable. But this association of reason with good is wishful thinking. Of course, reason might argue for doing good, but it might just as well argue for doing bad. Take a non-murderous example. Is it right or wrong for a student to cheat on a test? It's wrong, of course. But now answer this. Is it rational or irrational 
to cheat on a test? The answer is not quite as obvious, is it? After all, if you can get away with it, and it might mean the difference between getting into a great school or getting a great job, cheating on a test may well be reasonable. The same logic applies to participating in a shady but lucrative business deal or engaging in a marital infidelity. If you know you can get away with it or simply judge that the benefits of doing something illegal or immoral outweigh the risk of being caught, why not do it? Or answer this, was it rational or irrational for a non-Jew in Nazi-occupied Europe during World War II to risk his or her life to hide a Jew? We all know that this was moral greatness of the highest order. But was it rational? Not really. You can't get much more rational than self-preservation. Moreover, in all the studies I have read of non-Jewish rescuers of Jews during the Holocaust, and I have read many, I have never read of any rescuers who said that they did what they did because it was the reasonable or rational thing to do. Not one. Reason leads to good only when you want it to, just as it leads to bad when you want it to. Reason is just a tool. It is no more intrinsically moral than a knife. A knife can be used to murder or to torture people, but in the hands of a surgeon, it can be used to save lives. If you want to preserve liberty, then it is rational to fight and risk your life on its behalf. And if you want to maintain a fascist or a communist or an Islamist dictatorship, then it's equally rational to risk your life on its behalf. And talking about liberty, it isn't reason that makes people value liberty. Many rational people value security or order or territory or theocracy or many other things much more than they value liberty. Reason can lead people to all kinds of conclusions. For example, asked if he would kill a disabled baby, a distinguished professor of philosophy at Princeton University responded, quote, yes, if that was in the best interests of the baby and of the family as a whole, unquote. Can you offer a purely rational reason why the professor is wrong? The only reason I can offer is a belief that all human beings are created in God's image and are therefore infinitely precious. But the preciousness of all human life is a belief, not an assertion of reason. The Greeks, the founders of Western reason, thought it quite reasonable to leave sickly babies to die of exposure. The baby would just be a burden on the parents and the state. It was faith-based Jerusalem, the other parent of Western civilization, not reason-based Athens, that taught the world to keep sickly babies alive. So, the next time you read of some terrible crime or some terrible regime, please don't dismiss it as irrational or mad. Call it for what it is. Evil. I'm Dennis Prager. Would you like to see more courses like this one? Donate. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. And visit PragerUniversity.com. I want to talk to you about a new feminism for the 21st century. There are three pillars to this new feminism. Dignity, the word no, and men. That's right, men. 
But before I expound on these three ideas, you need to know something about me. I was very involved in the feminist movement, including being on the board of directors of the National Organization for Women. For this, I feel much pride and some guilt. Pride because feminism has pushed forward some very important and needed changes. And guilt because it has also done a lot of damage. My work now is to reverse that damage. So in that spirit, let's talk about the first pillar of this new feminism, dignity. Dignity is at the core of what feminism should always be about. Dignity means that a woman should be able to freely choose her own path in life. That's what feminism once held. But does it still? Ask almost any female college student today what she aspires to be, and she'll list any number of career choices. The one she won't list is wife and mother. In fact, any time someone has the temerity to suggest that a woman might want to look for a husband while in college, as a very successful Princeton grad recently did in a letter to the school's newspaper, feminists go nuts. A new feminism will value and respect all responsible choices. And while we're talking about dignity, I can't think of anything less dignified for women than the feminist belief that in the sexual arena, women are like and therefore ought to act like men. Is this what the truly liberated woman wants? To have casual sex and think nothing of it like men do? That's what feminism aspires to? Sad to say, the answer has too often been yes. So let's add this up. Feminism has downplayed the desire for women to have a family, while at the same time hyping the rewards of career and casual sex. Not exactly a recipe for success or happiness. The second pillar of a new feminism is the word no. It's very much tied in with the first pillar. Throughout history, women have made great use of the word no. no. Of course, many times women said yes when they should have said no, and that's the basis of more than a few classic stories and novels. But this was the exception, not the rule. There is great power in that word no, and women, for the most part, knew how to wield that power. But in the last few decades, they've lost it, and the consequences have been catastrophic. Women, who fought not to be treated as sex objects, have become more objectified than ever. You see it everywhere, in music videos, on billboards, in the hookup culture, on campuses. And now we have the tawdry spectacle of teenage girls sexually pursuing teenage boys the way boys pursued girls. How did this happen? Because feminism began to advocate that women should behave like men. Whatever men did and however they did it, that's what women should do. Feminists were angry at men, but they wanted to be like them at the same time. No wonder our society is so confused. Women are robbing themselves of the ability to say no. The solution is to take that power back. This is especially true for young women. No. Saying no means I will not be defined by anyone else, not by feminists and not by men's sexual desires. That is female power. This is a good segue to my third pillar of a new feminism, men. It is easy for feminists to forget this, but it was men who gave up their monopoly on political power and gave women the right to vote. Men who invented birth control, the refrigerator, the washing machine, and so many other devices that liberated women. 
and men are different from women. Academics like to speculate that men and women are basically the same, that they're only socialized differently. But as George Orwell famously noted, that's an idea that only an intellectual would be foolish enough to believe. Moreover, the sexes need each other. For example, women civilize men. It's what we're supposed to do. But in order to accomplish this critical task, we must preserve our dignity, not be afraid to use the word no, and see men as partners, not as competitors, let alone oppressors. That's the way to a new feminism and the way to a better world for both sexes. I'm Tammy Bruce for Prager University. Join Prager University, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and sign up for free at PragerU.com.